0: Hello there fellow Flyers. Welcome again to the Plane Crash Podcast. This is your captain of the podcast Michael Bauer and this is our sixth episode. We made it to six that's pretty good right? Thanks to all of you out there that have been listening in and sending us your positive comments online. You can follow us on Twitter at plane crash pod. Our Twitter handle is plane crash pod and if you want to email us you can reach us at plane crash podcast at gmail.com. If you have a moment and can leave a review or rating on the Apple Podcast app or iTunes, we'd greatly appreciate your time and effort. Your positive comments serve as fuel for us to get off our butts and get to making a new episode. On today's podcast, we will be looking at TWA Flight 800, a scheduled flight from JFK in New York to Charles de Gaulle in Paris that took off on the evening of July 17th, 1996. Before we get into that flight, though, I like to point out at the top of every podcast that we realize what we were discussing here is a tragedy in the lives of many people out there in the world. Each crash is an event where someone's mother or brother or friend or neighbor lost their life, and we don't want to make light of anyone else's misfortune. We don't intend to be insensitive by discussing these accidents. We just see plane accidents as historical events, and we like to discuss why it happened, how it happened and how each crash ultimately led to us to make changes that resulted in air travel being as safe as it is today. Hopefully, the more we learn about air travel, the more we'll realize how safe it is, and the less we'll have anxiety when we're boarding our next flight. Uh, Today on the podcast, we are joined by Tess Andrade, our producer. How are you doing, Tess?
1: Hello. Thank you so much for having me on this distinguished podcast.
0: Thanks for uh, helping out. Uh, Do you have any airlines in particular that you like? Like if you have to book a flight and they're all kind of the same cost, do you have one that you prefer to Um, another these days?
1: I've actually had really good experiences with Alaska Airlines.
0: Yeah. I like Alaska too. I've had... This one time I was in Portland and I had to change um, flights. I got to the airport like three hours early and I noticed that another flight was coming to Los Angeles that was leaving like a half an hour and they gave me a free pass for this new flight that was saved me two and a half hours of my life. They even wow. said, we usually charge people, but we're not charging you today just because we're a good company. And hey... Now we're on a podcast talking about
1: them. Uh, yeah, I like them so much that I actually purchased stock.
0: Oh yeah, from you're, them. You're I have a. I'm a
1: shareholder, a shareholder of a singular stock in Alaska Airlines. I
0: wonder if this will cause a boost in the price of that stock.
1: Well, I hope so because I'm losing money on them as Is much that, as I love them as an think, airline.
0: What if there's like newscasters out there that just give you know, puff pieces to companies they own stock in <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they that's notice, what this is a puff piece yeah, on Alaska. Airlines. I don't I don't know how much influence we have, but <laughs> I think that would be a smart move if you were like a news journalist and you owned stock in ExxonMobil and you were just constantly writing stories about how great they were.
1: Oh yeah. <laughs> You're like oh, go to my ten to million viewers
0: buy some ExxonMobil. Well Thanks for joining us today. It's always a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Are you ready to get into Flight 800?
1: Yeah, let's dive right in.
0: Transworld Airlines Flight 800 was a flight that was scheduled to depart JFK in New York around 7 p.m. on July 17th, 1996, initially stopping over in Paris and then continuing on eventually to Rome and Italy. The plane was a Boeing 747-131 that was built the summer of 1971. So at this point in 1996, the plane is 25 years old. It had been used by TWA for 16,869 flights for a total of 93,303 flight hours. This particular plane had flown from Athens, Greece to JFK in New York the morning of July 17, 1996. The captain of Flight 800 was Ralph G. Kevorkian. He was 58 years old had 18,800 flight hours, 5,490 hours on Boeing 747s. In the first officer seat was another captain. That was Czech airman for this flight named Steven Snyder. He had 17,000 flight hours, 4,700 on Boeing 747s. There were also two flight engineers in the cockpit. 25-year-old Oliver Crick was in the flight engineer seat. He was training to be a flight engineer for Boeing 747s. He only had 30 hours on this particular model of plane, but had 2,520 flight hours under his belt. Crick, the trainee, was being overseen by Richard Campbell, a 63-year-old flight engineer, Czech airman that was seated in the cockpit jump seat. There were 230 people on board Flight 800, 212 passengers, 14 flight attendants, two pilots, and two flight engineers for a total flight crew of 18. As I said earlier, the plane was supposed to take off at 7 p.m., but there's a delay for two reasons. First, there's a fleet service vehicle that broke down and was blocking the plane from leaving gate 27 at JFK. They had to wait around for a tow truck to show up and take the vehicle away so the plane could pull back from the gate. So the gates uh, blocked, this, this vehicle's broken down and preventing the plane from backing up. Secondly, there was a relatively new rule due to the Pan Am Lockerbie bombing that said if there's a piece of luggage on the plane that's been checked in by a passenger, but that passenger isn't on the plane at the time of departure, then that luggage can't be on the plane. So on flight 800, they thought they had a piece of luggage in the cargo hold from a passenger that they thought wasn't on the plane. Turns out eventually they realized that they had made a mistake and the passenger in question was on board the plane the entire time. So these two minor issues keep the plane sitting at gate 27 for an extra hour till around after, just slightly after 8 p.m. July 17th, 1996 was a hot day in New York. It's evening, but it's still 87 degrees on the tarmac. There's a delay, so for two and a half hours, the plane was sitting at the gate with two of the three air conditioner packs on the plane running the entire time. Trying to crank out cool air to keep the passenger cabin comfortable. The ground crew fills up the fuel tanks on each wing of the plane, but they leave the center fuel tank pretty low. The plane had enough fuel to get to Paris, so there's only a small amount of fuel in the center wing fuel tank. After the aforementioned delays, the plane finally pushes off from the gate at 8.02 p.m. Flight 800 taxis to the runway and eventually gets clearance and takes off from runway 22R at 8.18 p.m. Visibility is clear and the plane ascends to 13,800 feet over the next 11 minutes. At 8:29 p.m. the cockpit voice recorder records the captain saying, "Look at that crazy fuel flow indicator on number 4. See that?" The captain is indicating that he's getting an abnormal reading from a fuel flow indicator. TWA 800 is now flying alongside Long Island nine miles to its south, and it's starting to make its trek towards the Atlantic Ocean when suddenly at 8.31 p.m. there's a massive explosion on the plane. This CVR recording catches a fraction of a second of this very loud sound right at the end of the recording. A captain of another flight, Eastwind Airlines Flight 507, was also in the vicinity of TWA Flight 800 at around 8.31 p.m. on July 17th, and he radios over to air traffic control, just saw an explosion out here, We just saw an explosion up ahead of us here, about 16,000 feet or something like that. It just went down into the water. A number of eyewitnesses on Long Island said that they had seen a flare like object ascend into the sky and eventually turn into a massive fireball which descended down into the ocean. Rescue crews were quickly dispatched to the scene in the hopes that they'd find some survivors, but unfortunately, no one survived the accident. Eyewitness accounts raised fears amongst the public, media, and government that a missile had been fired at Flight 800. It was considered initially that this could have been an act of terrorism, and thus the FBI was involved in the investigation of the crash right from the start. It's important to remember the climate and mentality of America in 1996. In February of 1993, the World Trade Center was bombed. In April of 1995, the Oklahoma City bombing took place where Timothy McVeigh blew up a federal building in downtown Oklahoma City. So Americans in the mid-90s are used to turning on their televisions and finding images of a fiery disaster with terrorism to blame. So in July of 1996, when Americans turn on their TV and find images of fiery wreckage floating off the coast of Long Island... Coupled with these eyewitness accounts where citizens are claiming to have seen something resembling a firework ascending into the sky and leading to an aircraft explosion, immediately, Americans, the media, government are all thinking terrorism right off the bat. Now, generally, when there's a plane crash in the U.S., the NTSB, the National Transportation Safety Board, is in charge of the investigation. They investigate what mechanically went wrong and... Whether, you know, a pilot made an error that resulted in the accident. Given the recent events of terrorism in the mid-90s in America and these eyewitness accounts, the FBI immediately starts a criminal investigation of TWA Flight 800, assuming there's a good chance terrorism might be to blame for this tragedy. So the NTSB and FBI are both pursuing these parallel investigations. The FBI has a criminal investigation, the NTSB has an accident investigation, and the investigation lasts for four years. And it's a long and arduous process, but recovery crews were able to gather and reassemble 97% of the wreckage in a massive hangar in Culverton, New York on Long Island. There was a lot of acrimony between the NTSB and FBI during their four-year investigation. Neither agency was designated in the lead role. And the difference in culture between these two agencies often caused conflict and poor communication. The FBI were a bunch of cops. They saw this accident through the lens of terrorism. They wanted to get to a conclusion immediately and start a passionate pursuit of the bad guys. You know, arrest some people and get some justice for the victims. And on the other hand, you had the NTSB, which was full of a bunch of technicians and engineers that were used to analyzing all possibilities for an accident and never jumping to conclusions until they're 100% sure what happens. So for four years they investigate, they know the plane blew up, but they don't know how the plane blew up. Was it a missile? Lots of witnesses describe seeing a flare-like object go up and ascend in the sky and then blast into a hot, huge fireball. If it was a missile, was it a terrorist, or was the missile shot off by accident by the U.S. Navy mistaking the plane for a target during training exercises? Maybe it could have been a bomb, or did the plane just suffer structural failure from fatigue? After all, it's a 25-year-old plane that had 17,000 flights. Maybe there was some sort of mechanical issue that led to structural failure. There were moments during the investigation where they thought it was a bomb. A small amount of explosive residue was found on the floor panel of the plane. Samples of the floor panel tested positive for RDX, nitroglycerin, and PETN, which are all explosive materials. This received a lot of media attention at the time and pushed investigators to consider that a bomb had been the cause of the explosion on the plane. But shortly after, it was discovered that this particular plane was used to train bomb-sniffing dogs. Six weeks earlier in St. Louis, this plane was used in a dog training exercise for detection of explosive materials, and it was claimed that the residue found on the plane was from this dog training exercise. Additionally, there wasn't any damage to the victims of the crash consistent with a bomb-like explosion, and none of the missing sections of the fuselage were large enough to point to a detonation of a bomb or a missile. It also seemed highly unlikely that the plane was brought down by a fuel tank explosion. Uh, A1 jet fuel is unleaded kerosene that in its liquid form isn't very flammable. You can take a small cup of liquid jet fuel and drop a lit match into it and it'll be quickly snuffed out. A1 jet fuel won't light up like gasoline. Additionally, fuel tanks are built to withstand great pressure and contain a small explosion if it was to occur. However... If jet fuel is heated and turns from liquid into like a mist or a vapor, it becomes very flammable. What investigators eventually discovered is that the center wing fuel tank on flight 800 had very little fuel in it to begin the flight. Both the right and left wing fuel tanks were filled up, and the ground crew left the center tank virtually empty because the plane had enough fuel to get to Paris. The center wing fuel tank had only 50 gallons of fuel in it prior to departure. Additionally, the center wing fuel tank sits right on top of the plane's air conditioners. The same air conditioners that were running full blast for two and a half hours as the plane sat at gate 27 dealing with these various delays from baggage confusion and the broken down fleet service vehicle. These air conditioners, they heat up to 350 degrees. So basically the center wing fuel tank was sitting on top of an oven, which was these 350 degree air conditioners. The heat from the air conditioners was heating up this small amount of fuel in the center fuel tank, turning that jet fuel into vapor. So the center wing fuel tank of Flight 800 was a fuel tank full of heated up fuel vapor. It was well beyond its flash point and was estimated to be around 127 degrees. So now we have a super dangerous situation. A fuel tank full of hot explosive fuel vapor in the center fuel tank of Flight 800, but investigators still didn't know what caused the tank to explode. The vapor wasn't going to just explode out of nowhere. It needed some sort of spark. There's always a flammable air and fuel mixture in fuel tanks on planes, so plane designers tried to keep ignition sources away from the inside of fuel tanks, obviously. The only ignition source in the center fuel tank was the fuel quantity indication system, and the electrical currents that go to this system are intentionally kept very low to prevent a dangerous spark from occurring. However, the wiring for the fuel indication system was bundled outside the tank with the wiring for the cabin lights, which carries a very high voltage. The insulation of the wiring was worn down from 25 years of usage and poor maintenance, and the exposed metal from the two wires touched, causing a short circuit, where high voltage from the wiring for the cabin lights jumped into the fuel quantity indication wiring, traveled down into the central fuel tank, providing the high-voltage spark needed to ignite this explosive fuel vapor and cause the central wing fuel tank to explode. Some investigators believe when the pilot on the CVR recording mentioned that he was getting these crazy readings from his fuel flow indicator, this was an initial short circuit occurring between these exposed wires. Eventually, another short circuit triggered the explosion in the center wing fuel tank. The NTSB investigation concluded that Flight 800 was brought down by an explosion of the center wing fuel tank, resulting from ignition of the flammable fuel-air mixture in the tank. The source of ignition energy for the explosion could not be determined with certainty, but of the sources evaluated by the investigation, the most likely was a short circuit outside of the center wing fuel tank that allowed excessive voltage to enter in the electrical wiring associated with the fuel quantity indication system. Additionally, the NTSB placed blame on two aspects of Boeing's 747 design. First, they said it was a mistake to assume that the fuel tank explosions could be prevented by eliminating ignition sources. Secondly, they said it was a mistake to have this huge heating source right below the center of fuel tank with no shield, no protective layer to prevent the fuel tank from being heated up and turned into this explosive vapor. As for explaining the eyewitness accounts that a flare was in the sky and then the plane exploded, the government report indicates that what witnesses were seeing was the plane after it had already broken apart and caught fire. The report claims the center wing fuel tank explodes, causing a fracture in the fuselage, which, which spreads up the sides of the plane, causing the front of the nose to break off from the rest of the plane and falls to the ocean. The rest of the plane, with the wings and engines still at climb thrusts, and attached to the rest of the passenger cabin, then caught fire and ascended to 1,700 feet before stalling and falling to the ocean. When eyewitnesses saw a flare ascending, the report claims this was actually the middle and the back of the plane entering a zoom climb, gaining altitude very quickly before stalling and just falling to the ocean. TWA Flight 800 is a favorite topic in the world of conspiracy theorists. The most popular um, conspiracy theory is that Flight 800 was shot down by a missile from the U.S. Navy during training exercises, and then there was a vast cover-up by the FBI to hide this information from the public as so as to not cause any panic. It's also claimed that 1996 was an election year, and Bill Clinton was worried about his re-election and having this massive government screw-up on his watch would have been bad for his reelection prospects. All the eyewitness accounts of seeing this flare go up in the sky gave momentum to this missile theory. Other theories out there include that the plane was brought down by a bomb. Another claims a meteorite exploded as it hit the atmosphere and this ignited the center fuel tank. Uh, Another one is that a terrorist attack via missile launched from land or boat could have happened. And a final one was electromagnetic interference emitted from a U.S. Navy boat is another theory. So I I don't know how you feel about the uh, conspiracy theories. How do you feel about them, Tess?
1: Mm, it's hard to know. I mean, I'm wondering how many witnesses were there that saw this supposed there was flare f- go up.
0: Quite a few. I think I read that the FBI in, uh, talked and interviewed like 700 people, if not more. Wow. A lot of people saw it, but I I think you know I think uh, people probably looked over when they already saw something, some reason to look over, you know? I don't know that there was any witness accounts that I read that was just like staring at this plane going through the sky and saw every single thing. There's issues that I have with, you know, conspiracy theories in general, especially this particular plane. I feel like... A, let's say that this conspiracy theory is true. This main one's true. Mm-hmm. So let's name what it is. It's This theory says that the U.S. Navy was doing training exercises and they mistook the plane for a target and they blew it out of the sky. So let's say that's exactly what happened. What that means is that everybody on that boat, everybody in the U.S. Navy is aware of what really happened. It means that the FBI people at the FBI that covered up this information, lots of people there know what happened. Lots of people in the CIA know what happened. A lot of people involved in government know what happened. They probably went home and discussed the matters with their significant others. So to me, I think if this conspiracy theory is 100% true, what it also means is that hundreds of Americans know about it. And not one of them has had guilty conscience, well, not one of them has had a moment where they've cracked and come to the public. You don't S- think somehow it's... hundreds of Americans all just bottled this up inside and said we need to be quiet about that. I think that's highly improbable. I think that doesn't make a lot of sense
1: right. You don't think it's possible that it was like a highly classified mission that very few people knew about
0: well i don't think that they did it on purpose i don't think that's what the conspiracy theory is is that it was done on purpose to like blow a plane out of the sky i think they say it was a mistake and then they didn't want to deal with the blowback didn't want to deal with citizens doubting their government saying how could something an accident like this happen i just don't see hundreds of americans having uh this horrible secret of being able to hold on to it. I I find the same thing with 9-11 and the conspiracy theories about 9-11 that a lot of people say that the twin towers were lined with explosives and were blown up, you know, that planes, that buildings don't demolish the way that they do. Uh, That looked like a controlled demolition. I'm like, again, if you were going to go with that theory, you're talking about hundreds of Americans and not one of them went crazy one day or broke, you know, that just mm-hmm. seems highly unlikely. I also feel like the evidence for this uh, flight doesn't really point to that. I feel like the fact that the pilot says a minute or two before the plane explodes, I'm getting these crazy readings. Yeah. Seems like that's like kind of the biggest clue that that just maybe, you know, that happens all the time. You get crazy readings, but it seems like from studying plane crashes, the number one key you have to fight figuring out what happened is a CVR recording or flight data. And the fact that something highly unusual was on the CVR recording of the pilot saying, I'm getting these crazy readings. That yeah. seems like kind of uh, a smoking gun of, Whoa, we should probably pay attention to that. Why could he possibly be getting these crazy readings? Probably came from a short circuit.
1: Has this affected uh, ha- the heating sources being The proximity of a heating source next to the fuel tank.
0: I think, you know, as much as this is a tragedy and people lost their lives, all plane crashes lead to us to investigate them and figure out what went wrong and how can we make flying safer in the future? Uh, A listener of this podcast wrote us recently and suggested that we should have a segment at the end of every episode about how this crash made flying safer. So this is a nod to to that uh, listener out there for the helpful suggestion. So how did TWA Flight 800 make flying safer today? Well, first off, the NTSB made a number of recommendations in regards to the wiring of aircrafts. One suggested uh, airplane manufacturers reconsider their past designs and make sure there's adequate separation of wires that power different critical systems. Um, The NTSB suggested that maintenance crews needed better training at identifying wiring that may be unsafe or worn down to prevent future short circuits from taking place. They suggested that a new nitrogen inerting system be developed that would keep fuel tanks from becoming this highly combustible mix of vapor. This system would work at reducing the amount of oxygen in fuel tanks. They suggested that airlines and airplane manufacturers add insulation between heat generating sources like an air conditioner and the center fuel tank. So there's um, your great idea. Uh, They suggested that the center fuel tank should be filled up with cool fuel from ground tanks when possible, that there should be a minimum level to the center tank to prevent the center tank from turning into too much vapor, and that there should be a proper monitoring of the temperature of the center fuel tank to make sure it's not rising too high or getting above flashpoint. They also suggested that better guidelines were needed in dog training exercises where small amounts of explosive materials are used to prevent contamination so there isn't confusion in the future. Uh, Another suggestion was to add a power surge protection system to the fuel indication wiring systems to prevent high voltage from being able to enter the center fuel tank as they had suspected happened for flight 800. Also due to flight 800, uh, the often clash between the NTSB and FBI, it was decided that for future accidents, The NTSB has priority in any airplane accident investigation unless the attorney general at the time and the chairman of the NTSB decide that the plane accident was due to a criminal act. So the NTSB has priority over the FBI now in regards to plane crash investigations to prevent confusion and conflict in the future. So. That's how we made uh, flying safer, thanks to the investigation of Flight 800. When I was just reading that, I I think another thing that probably gave fuel to conspiracy theories is just the fact that they found, like, explosive, even though it was a trace amount, find explosive material on the plane. That seems kind of unusual. Be like, we found, you know, nitroglycerin. And it also seems kind of like a patched-up story. Oh, we had dogs sniffing on it. I think yeah. I think the retort to that is that they said they found it on a piece of floor panel that wasn't exploded at all. So yeah. if you are going to have explosive materials, they should explode and would destroy you know, what it was on.
1: Right, right, right. That would make sense. Yeah. I think I remember, I was young when this happened, but I sort of vaguely remember it. And I feel like at the time, terrorism was so much on everyone's brain that it's not surprising that that was one of the first things that people came to to. mind.
0: No, I agree. I think anytime, I think, uh, you know, planes don't generally just explode out of the sky. It was a highly unusual situation. And you also had a time where a number of terrorists, terrorism, uh, events of terrorism were taking place. So it seems like when people saw stuff, you know, a plane exploded and then you had a bunch of eyewitnesses saying, we saw this like firework open in the sky and then this fireball occur that it, it seemed, you know, that that's why the FBI got involved immediately. I think they, uh, there was one more little point that I wanted to make that if, if that I read that if a missile or bomb had gone off, it would have blown fragments of metal into the plane. And they would have found victims with pieces of metal Mm. in them. And they didn't find any of that. So that led them to think Mm. that it wasn't missile or bomb related. On July 14th, 2004, a memorial was unveiled for the victims of TWA Flight 800. It's located at Smith Point County Park in Shirley, New York. And there's 13 flags representing the 13 different countries of the victims from the crash. Hmm. Yeah it's a sad story but we did learn you know another thing that can bring down a plane and this is just another puzzle piece that we can you know examine and realize that this is a this was a dangerous situation you shouldn't have a center fuel tank with very little fuel in it you shouldn't have air conditioners heating up this center fuel tank and we need to train people to look at the wiring in a plane make sure that It's in good condition and it isn't going to cause any short circuits. TWA, which was based out of my hometown in St. Louis, Missouri, struggled to recover from the bad publicity of the crash of Flight 800 Uh, in 2001. Just five years later, it filed for bankruptcy for a third time in its history and was acquired by American Airlines. Many St. Louis employees of TWA lost their jobs and American Airlines cut business in St. Louis from 800 operations a day to 200 because American already had a hub in Chicago. It's interesting to think that this just one plane crash can lead to so many ramifications through society or a city. In addition to the tragedy of hundreds of lives that were lost, a crash can cripple an airline and lead to hundreds of people losing their jobs. Even in a city like St. Louis, losing 600 flights a day, that means 600 flights full of people that were coming into St. Louis that would have you know, stayed in hotels or gone to restaurants or car rentals, or maybe they would have just hung out at the airport and waited for a connecting flight and had some drinks or gone to a store and bought a souvenir. All that was gone. Um, I hope American Airlines or someone out there can bring back TWA. I grew up in St. Louis and I remember driving past Lambert Airport with my parents on the way to baseball games or going downtown you would see this big TWA sign and you would see TWA uh planes taking off and landing and I always had this attraction to the red and white TWA logo it was always something I had pride in because I was like oh that's the St. Louis airline it's kind of sad that it went away
1: Well now you can go to the TWA hotel in New York City.
0: Yeah, I saw that. The uh, TWA has a new hotel at JFK that's all mid-century modern, and there's like looks this in- really cool. Yeah, there's this infinity pool that overlooks the tarmac, and you can sit in the pool, watch planes take off and land. They even have a deal where you can just get a room for four hours if you have a long layover and you don't want to sit in some chair or be in the middle of the airport. You can have this cool experience of just getting a hotel room and watching TV and. Catching a nap.
1: It's probably all I can afford, but I would take it four
0: hours. Yeah, I think it's like a hundred and forty bucks or something. It seemed pretty reasonable, and the pictures online were really cool.
1: So, oh, take a quick nap.
0: Yeah, well, it would be nice if somebody out there could bring back TWA. I guess that would be up to American Airlines. They'd have to let go of a brand name, but it would American be nice...
1: Airlines, if you're listening, please bring back TWA. Yeah,
0: I liked TWA. It'd be a nice story of redemption and resurrection. So we'll see. Maybe the fut- in the future, there will be TWA planes in the sky again. Let's hope so. But um, I think that's going to do it for today's episode of the Plane Crash Podcast. I'd like to thank all of you listeners out there listening. I'd like to thank Tess Andrade, our producer and our interviewee today.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Um, if you have a moment and you can reach out to us on Twitter at Plane Crash Pod, if you could go on iTunes and review us, we'd greatly appreciate it. And I hope you all are having an amazing week. I hope you guys are getting in um, some fall bookings somewhere. Go somewhere fun. You deserve it. You've been working hard. And getting on a plane and going somewhere is amazing. And I uh, hope you guys all have a great week. Thanks for listening.